The third lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to John, the 20th chapter. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a nice place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in the first grade, I met a guy who would later become one of my really good friends. We used to hang out at each other's houses all the time. Well, most of the time we just hung out at his house because he had all the cool toys. He had bicycles and skateboards. He had four-wheelers. He had video games. He had really expensive sunglasses, and he had the only basketball goal in the neighborhood with a glass backboard. I spent all my time over there that I could spend over there. He even had a bedroom all to himself, and it was about four times the size of the bedroom that my brothers and I shared. You see, the coolest thing about Zach Ravencraft's house was that he had a pool in the backyard, and that made for a lot of summertime fun. It felt like we spent the majority of our summers playing in that pool. But that pool taught me how to have fun like a child, like any child should. But it also taught me something else that summer of my first grade year. The first time I got to Zach's house and we were about to get into the pool, Zach's dad could see that I was a little nervous. I had no problem getting in the swimming pools that had shallow ends. I could doggy paddle a little bit. I could keep myself above water for a little while. And I was tall for my age, so if it was a shallow end, I could touch the bottom and I was okay. But I had never encountered a swimming pool with a deep end and a diving board. And I walked up to the edge of the deep end of the pool, and I looked down, and I could see that it was deep, and I was not ready to jump in. And and Mr. Jim, Zach's dad, was standing behind me, and he could tell that I was nervous. So he smiled, and and he didn't want me to, to feel so nervous about it. And he looked over at Zach, and and Zach saw that everything was okay, but he needed to come over. So he came running over to Mr. Jim, and Mr. Jim looked at him the way that he always looked at both of us when he was about to cross the line of doing what is probably decent. And in his patented way, these words came out of his mouth. Rottweiler, that's what he called me because he knew it got under my skin. Rottweiler, just jump in. But Mr. Jim, I can't swim. I can't swim. To which he replied, Rottweiler, you worry too much about the details. Jump in, flail around, you'll figure it out. While this might sound a little bit like neglect, which it may have been, I trusted Mr. Jim. See, Mr. Jim was the captain on the police force there in town for many years, and I knew that his job was to make sure that the people of the town were safe. And there was no way that he was going to be giving me advice without making sure that I was going to be safe if I followed it. Mr. Jim and Zach... They were standing there. Mr. Jim said, come here, Zach. And before Zach realized what was going on, Mr. Jim had picked him up in his arms and had thrown him through the air. 
He threw him towards the pool. And as Zach flew through the air, he was screaming. He looked excited and terrified all at the same time. And he hit that water and he went under. And he was kicking around. Mr. Jim was laughing to the point he almost fell in the pool himself. And I wasn't sure how to react. Because it didn't look like Mr. Jim was going to go in and save him. It didn't look like Zach knew exactly what he was doing. And so I did the logical thing that I could do knowing I couldn't swim. I dove right into the deep end after Zach. I dove head first into that pool and I swam all summer long. I later learned that Zach could swim. You see, Mr. Jim had done this when Zach was two years old. He had thrown him in the deep end and figured he would flail around and figure it out, and he did. But that summer, I learned that there are some things in life that are worth just diving headfirst into, even if you don't have all of the details figured out just yet. The fear of not knowing or the fear of thinking you can't do something just because you haven't tried to do it before can keep you standing at the edge of an exciting adventure forever if you're not willing to take the plunge. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. We celebrated the fact that Jesus Christ has been risen from the tomb. He is alive. Easter has come. Easter is still here. We celebrated the fact that Jesus was able to, able to overcome death. The one thing that none of us have been able to conquer yet. But Jesus has. But even though Easter Sunday was just a couple of weeks ago, we're still in the midst of this Easter season. So we're going to continue this journey by finding ourselves at the tomb again. Today we're going to be talking about the way that the res resurrection of our Lord unleashes us to go out into the world and to bring others along with us on this faith journey. We don't need to have any fear about going out and inviting others to join us in this. But there's an interesting thing that we're going to learn today about inviting others to join us on this journey. It doesn't always happen the way that many of us try to make it happen. Sometimes getting people to join in on the journey means that we don't just tell them how to do it. Most of the time, if you want people to dive head first into a situation that they are very unsure of, you're going to have to dive in first. You're going to have to take that first step for them so that they can see that it's going to be okay when they do too. I've read this story of the resurrection account in John's Gospel tons of times. I know it backwards and forwards. It's extremely familiar to me, and I'm sure many of y'all have heard it before too. You're familiar with it. But the thing that happens when you're familiar with a story is that you often fill in a lot of the details that you think are there, or you end up missing important ones that actually are there because you're just so used to it. Well, one of the things that I picked up this time when I was reading is that I slowed down and I read through it several times, changed the way that I view this entire resurrection account. Most of the time I end up reading this resurrection account is just that. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the aftermath thereafter. But this time it turned into something more than that. It turned into a very strong passage that should teach us how to go out and evangelize, how to go out and tell people the good news turned into a passage that should teach each one of us how to approach this sort of a situation. And it really should come as no surprise to me or any of y'all because this approach is exactly the same as what Jesus did throughout his entire ministry. But for whatever reason, this approach that Jesus uses and this approach that we find in this particular resurrection account, we just don't often do it this way. It doesn't line up with the way that we try to tell others about God and God's love. A lot of times we end up running into one of two issues when we try to go out and tell people about the good news. One, we either relegate all of our church life to what we do on Sunday mornings in church or maybe one or two other times throughout the week when we find ourselves within the walls of the church, right? 
Or two, we end up telling people about how great the church is or how great God is or how much God has done for us or how much we've been able to do for God and what difference that's made in our life. But we do it in a language that people who aren't familiar with just don't understand. What do you think might happen if you were to take a step back from your own spiritual life? If you took a step back and you take a look at the way that you're actually living out your faith, would you discover that you attend church frequently? Many times every week? Would you discover that you attend a lot of Bible studies, either here or in someone's home? What about your spiritual life outside of the walls of the church, when you're not around other Christians so much? Are you praying when you're not at church? Are you reading scripture when you're not at church? More importantly, are worship and prayer and reading scripture affecting the way that you're living out your life of faith when you're not intentionally thinking about your life of faith? We don't do these things that we do because we're looking to place check marks next to a faith to-do list. We do these things because we're hoping that, and we're trusting that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be transformed on the inside. So much so that what people see on the outside is totally different. It's good. It's what God's calling us to be. We want our hearts to be transformed so that our actions reflect God's love. Are we relegating our faith to the walls of the church? Most of the time not, but sometimes we are. Sometimes we are. And then the second issue, that we, we end up using this language to tell others about how great church is or, or how great God is, but they just don't understand it. They don't understand it because we're using words that they don't understand. What would happen if you went to another country? To a country where you don't speak the native language. And they started telling you about God. What if they started telling you about their faith? And how much it meant to them? What difference it had made in their life? We'd probably smile. We'd nod our heads in agreement. Not understanding a word that they said. And I can guarantee you that not one word of what they have said is going to sink into our hearts. Because we just don't get it. We just don't understand that language. Several years ago, I discovered something that's enabled me to be a better instrument of God's love in the world. It's caused me to, to be useful to God in spreading the good news to other people who haven't heard it. It's very much related to this issue of speaking a language that others may not understand. It took me going to Costa Rica, of leaving the area that I am, to go to a location that was filled with people who spoke a language that I did not speak, to understand a very basic concept that each of us have been reading in the Bible since we were little kids. I wish it hadn't taken so long for me to learn this basic concept. But that is all too often the case for many of us. I can remember going to Costa Rica the first year I was appointed here at Central. And I participated in Christian work camps in the past, and they've been good. We've done a lot of good. We really have. But there was never a language barrier issue involved. We all understood what one another said. And it never presented a challenge that forced me to address the way that I was telling others about God. But during our time in Costa Rica, I worked alongside of many people who spoke Spanish. And it was a very different dialect of Spanish than what I had learned in high school. I was good at Spanish in high school. But what I have discovered is that no one who speaks Spanish in the real world speaks the Spanish that you will learn in high school. So it was particularly useless while I was down there. Well, there was one night that we got to worship alongside of those who lived in Costa Rica. They spoke a different language. The entire service was in a different language. 
None of us understood a word that was being said. But every single one of us knew exactly what was going on in that service. A new language began to reveal itself the longer we were going on in that service. It was the language of love and mercy and compassion. It's a language that crosses all other barriers. Socioeconomic, political, all of these things. Love, mercy, compassion. We all understand that. It's the universal language that Jesus Christ spoke throughout his ministry. It's the universal language that he has taught each one of us to speak. So often, though, we try to tell the good news to people using words that they just can't understand. So let us take a look at this resurrection passage from John. John tells us that Mary went down to the tomb, and then she went back to town. She got John, and she got Peter, and she said, Look, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's not there. The tomb's empty. Y'all have to come and see. Come on. So after hearing that their best friend, their Messiah, the one that they had been following all this time in their ministry, was not where he should have been, it caused John and Peter to run as fast as they possibly could to this tomb that was empty. John reached the tomb first. He got there first, and he could see enough of the inside of that tomb to be startled enough to not want to take another step inside of it. He stood by the edge of the pool, realizing that he hadn't worked out all the details yet. He was afraid of what might happen if he decided to take the plunge into the deep end. Well, Peter wasn't so concerned with all those details. He wanted to know what had happened to his Messiah. He wanted to know who it was that had taken Jesus away. He had to jump in and he had to find out exactly what happened. So even though John reached the tomb first, Peter had no time to stop at the edge of this pool. He jumped right in, head first. And we know from the book of Acts that Peter swam the rest of his life long. Not only did Peter swim, but as soon as John saw that Peter was okay when he stepped inside of that tomb and that it was worth it, he immediately found himself standing inside of that empty tomb also. Folks, this is evangelism when it's done well. It's not so much telling other people what to do and how to do it. It's walking with them to a place that you know they should be, but they're too afraid to take the next step. And it's taking that step that they're afraid to take so that they can see that it's worth taking. If they can see that you're willing to take that step that they are just too afraid to take, if they can see that this step that is causing so much fear and doubt in their life is worth taking no matter the consequences, that's where you're going to find love. That's where you'll find mercy and that's where you'll find compassion. That's where you're going to find the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So as you leave this place today, know that you've been unleashed to go. To go and bring others. To find people out there in the world who are afraid to take the next step in their journey of faith. They're out there. So pray for God to lead you to them. And then pray for God to give you the strength and the wisdom and the courage to take that step that they are afraid to take so that they might find themselves inside of that empty tomb with you. Because it's there where you and another find yourselves staring at a neatly folded tomb inside of an empty tomb. But the real journey begins. So go. Bring others. Tell them that he is risen. Amen.